Oh my goodness, dear scorekeepers. Thank you so, so much for joining us for another episode of The Score. This is Minnesota Opera's podcast all about opera, classical music, and pop culture as seen from the perspective of three queer Black opera administrators. Um, As always, I am Rocky Jones, EDI director uh, at Minnesota Opera. And uh, this week, it's just me. Um, everybody's on vacation. Technically, I'm on vacation, too, but I decided to drop in real quick and say hi. Um, but, you know, we're going to do something a little different. Well, I guess not that different, because we did this around the same time last year. Um, but what what with it being the end of another fantastic year um, here at The Score, where we all feel so lucky that we get to have these conversations with you and have brilliant conversations with all of our our wonderful guests and with each other, of course, um, that we wanted to compile um, a few of our favorite conversations, which is not to say that any of the other conversations were less than in any way, um, but these were just some of the, the conversations that, looking back on 2022, um, that we really enjoyed and we wanted to really share with all of you. And if you wanted to share this podcast with some of your friends or family, because um, I know some of you are probably... Um, unfortunately maybe stuck in the airport um thank you southwest um or you know at home with your families and looking for something to do hey share the score with them here's some little bite-sized pieces um but uh, <laughs> okay same shameless self-promotion over um we'll get to the fun stuff um but I just really wanted to take some time really to just thank all of you, our loyal scorekeepers, for um, just making um, this year just a lot of fun. Um, you know, sometimes we uh, we get to, to uh, talking about uh, some pretty heavy topics, some heady topics also, um, but we have built this really beautiful, lovely community, and um, I'm so appreciative um, for all of you um, tuning in every episode, and for all of your feedback, and for all of the love, and um, just want to return all of that back to you. So sit tight, enjoy, and we will be back in the new year with um, all sorts of fantastic guests that I'm so excited about. I cannot wait um, to have these conversations and share them with you. Um, So enjoy the show, and um, we'll see you in 2023. Okay, so first up, uh, do you remember uh, this past fall when um, Lizzo went to the Library of Congress and played an antique flute and everyone lost their minds, apparently? (laughs) Um, Well, Lee Page and I do, um, and so we had a conversation about it when it first happened, and we were uh, baffled, and we had jokes. So um, enjoy uh, Lizzo and the Crystal Flute, um, which I agree, beautiful name for an incredible children's book. Something. But one thing that, you know, being the classical music uh, podcast that we are, um, that 
we have been remiss in talking about for several weeks now. I was I was actually about to make a joke about it when Garrett was on the show because he mentioned something about trying the flute, and I was like, "Don't try the flute, y'all." Because <laughs> <laughs> one of our faves, Miss Lizzo, <sighs> Queen, amazing singer, artist musician flautist flautist yes went to the library of congress in my good old hometown of washington <laughs> dc <laughs> and was you know shown a collection of you know I have not ancient flutes, but historical flutes. <laughs> <laughs> flutes of historical import. I was like, what's the word for like old, but not that old? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long week, y'all. I'm sorry. Um, but historical flutes, one of which was uh, a crystal flute owned by the fourth president of the United States of America, Mr. James Madison. And she she played the flute. She played the flute later on at her show. And it was a lovely little moment. It was cute. It was just like, oh, what a cute little piece of, of history. <laughs> Apparently not, according <laughs> to some corners of the internet. And I was just baffled by this. I never even thought in a million years. I just thought like, oh, this was this is a cute little, a cute little stunt that the Library of Congress is is putting on and what a nice little moment between Lizzo and and I don't I don't know what is her title, the librarian in chief, the the head the chief yeah chief librarian. Chief librarian maybe. Yeah. She's a black woman, these two black women coming together, you know, this you know to to nice little moment. <laughs> but apparently it is it has led to the end of democracy as we know it. <laughs> <laughs> is at least as bad as that whole storming the capitol thing right apparently apparently just it was uh i i i, I don't I, I don't know I'm, I'm i'm trying to put myself in the position of finding something <laughs> anything wrong with what happened and i just I, I can't imagine. I, I I legitimately like I I saw it. I thought I had the exact same thought process that you did, Rocky. I was like, this is this is cute. Great. Moved on with my day. And I assumed everyone else was gonna do the same thing. And I was so wrong. <laughs> I was so wrong. People were upset. It seemed about um lit whether or not Lizzo was qualified to play this flute, I guess. Which is such whether a strange, or which is, oh my God. So, so weird. The fact whether, that she like, played the, the flute at her show wearing a dance costume <laughs> <laughs> was Just... apparently a problem because she was showing her body. I guess. And of course, if, if Lizzo is ever showing her body in public, then we have to have a conversation about that, right. apparently. They saw her play it at the concert and, you know, she just let out one little, one little note. And they assume that she can't really play flute or that she doesn't know 
how for real when we have plenty of video evidence that that's mm-hmm. not true all over um, the place <laughs> also it immediately anyone with sense would would have seen that seen that and said yeah that makes sense because it is a crystal flute that belonged to a u.s <laughs> resident no you think she's gonna just take it and break into choreography with the big girls no <laughs> they were like take one without one breath one note and give it back <laughs> I, I, assumed, I, I understood that immediately immediately but i guess other people didn't it, it the the there were like 25 different things about it that disturbed me like kind of deeply including the fact that most of the people complaining couldn't tell you anything about who james madison was right they'd go full kiki palmer <laughs> sorry to this man <laughs> right like, just, <laughs> no idea about who he was what number president if he was president is he on the two dollar bill like the 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 whole line of 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 complaint was ridiculous on its face and and then kind of like moving on from that the number of false equivalencies between lizzo playing the flute and any number of other things like the the way whataboutisms kind of play out in our mm-hmm. current political divide. That was very strange to me that this seemed like it could be equated with anything else that is like actually happening. And then the fact that Candace Owens never seems to have anything productive to do with her time, like ever. Like I I legitimately don't understand what the situation is that like anytime somebody black is doing something that looks fun or interesting that her immediate response is to sort of degrade them as about anything that she can think about like it's i i don't i really don't get it i mean ma'am first of all go get yourself a bottle of lotion and then you can come (laughs) (laughs) talk to to anyone about anything but yeah not lotion a butter (laughs) (laughs) something with butter in the title Uh, i mean you know and of course she's a part of the the kanye story as well i just I don't even I don't have words because it just it fills me with so much just like sadness, but also just like rage at the same time that it's just like I don't feel like anything that I could say would be productive, (laughs) which would which perhaps we don't need right now. Perhaps this is just the moment to just be angry. But it's just like. You know, and and obviously, like, her con artistry has been well documented, (laughs) alleged, alleged. (laughs) So it's just like, I don't even... (laughs) So it's just like, I don't even understand, like, why people are listening to her at all, other than, like, you know... The obvious reasons. The (laughs) obvious reasons. Her and Christian Walker and all those folks had to get up there, and now Kanye, apparently. And just tear us down for sport. <laughs> you know, they say the what actually brought about the end of the Roman Empire was lead poisoning because the water going through those, you know, 
aqueducts was, you know, the aqueducts were iron and rusty, apparently. And then a lot of folks got lead poisoning, perhaps. Like, I, I don't, don't 100% know I wasn't there. But a lot of people apparently started behaving erratically in the last several decades of the empire, including um, the, the whole leadership apparatus, right? It, I sometimes wonder, is it something in the air? Is it something in the water? Something in the food? Because a lot of people, it, it's like our relationship to rational thought has sort of just fallen apart. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like I'm, I'm clearly grasping, off but off kilter. I mean, systemically, maybe, though. But... Yeah. Yeah. But it's I not could... like a person or two here or there. It seems no. like maybe most people on a collective level. I often after not long after leaving my house, even when I'm outside and just with people and observing behavior and things, I often find my say to myself out loud is everyone okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> is everyone okay are we okay and i i keep asking because i think we're not i think yeah i just don't think we are it's felt off kilter since they let us all back outside <laughs> i mean i think that's part of it certainly yeah. i think for a lot of folks you know it is sort of the capitalism of it all and just sort of finding mm -hmm. ways to just sort of hypnotize people and take their money which is all uh how do you um speak with asterisk <laughs> um f news um <laughs> that network <laughs> that's all that is like do you hate black people and have gold <laughs> that you'd like to sell <laughs> but yeah no i mean we were we went to the costco last sunday my husband and i and it was just it was insane just the way that people just sort of had no regard for the other people around them like the number mm. of people that just like walked out in front of our cart like while we were just like fully just pushing it down the aisle <laughs> or who were just like like literally there was one moment where there these two ladies were just blocking the entrance of the aisle and could not figure it was it was i felt like i was like playing the sims and like these two Sims were like in a room with no door. <laughs> just like meet mop, move meet meet mop, mop. And we were just like, excuse me. And they just could not figure out. <laughs> and I'm just like, is the simulation glitching? What's going on? <laughs> like it was so weird. It was so weird. But just sort of getting back to Lizzo, like the the comment that I saw that really, and it was by a conservative commentator that I will not name because I do not want any of their people <laughs> coming after after us, no, child, because I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, they said that like Lizzo is like a weird fat sex pervert who wears no clothes and twerks and <laughs> how dare this this weirdo was the word that they use how dare this weirdo <laughs> be allowed to touch this incredibly important flute that i guess signed the 
the Declaration of Independence <laughs> <laughs> and parted the seas. <laughs> and, and it was just like, it was so crazy. Like, it, just like reading, it's just like, how, how do you possibly get to that point yeah. where yeah. that's a thought that comes into your head and you're just not, you're not like, am I, am I high? <laughs> and then you put it down on Twitter and then you have thousands of people going like, yeah, 100%. I totally, that's a thing. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> some really like, that's some vintage brand racism right yeah. there. Yeah. To just like straight up be being like, Black women are weird and perver perverse. And just gross. saying it with your with your whole chest. <laughs> with your whole with chest. With your whole chest. Like you're a like you're a European conquistador visiting the Congo for the first time or something. Like, and you're writing this in your journal about your travels. This is vintage. This is vintage racism. Yeah. Like, wow. Like the yeah. LA City Councilwoman. Who was caught on tape? Did y'all see that? Yeah. Yes. Like, I mean, it, that is just like yep. right there. Just like yep. unvarnished. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, it's just crazy. They're it's really so crazy. Back. And <laughs> people don't even have sense enough to be ashamed of themselves At anymore, all. right? <laughs> she was just, oh, I'm not resigning. Finally, <laughs> the president had to be like, mm, I think you should resign. <laughs> Everyone in the room has just kind of been like, who gonna check me, boo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said it. <laughs> I mean, we literally have to have a whole congressional hearing about whether or not people attacking the Capitol, trying to overthrow the government, first of all, happened, and secondly, was inappropriate. Like, this is the activity that we're in right now, which is, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm not that old, but I've lived long enough to know that there's something com completely, completely strange happening in this country. And, and people in other countries must be watching us being like, Ooh, child, oh, right? Like, are. Go on I, TikTok. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell y'all to our international listeners, if it seems like it's weird over here, it is. It is. It is. And it's weird to us too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Also, um, can we also, uh, uh, back to the Lizzo and the, and the flute, the crystal flute, which sounds like a really cool children's story, actually. That actually <laughs> does sound amazing. <laughs> Free idea for someone who is an illustrator out there. Um, Absolutely. Copyright, copyright, copyright. Did it, was James Madison a slave owner? Yes. Yeah. So. 1,000%. What? what okay you understand why i just had to mm -hmm. under this is a foundational fact to this story to me yes. in the outrage and probably yes. if if not my first definitely my second thought when i heard that there was any outrage at all mm -hmm. about what happened i think in my head i went over the slave owners flu <laughs> 
<laughs> like I know, I know it's history. I know it's history, but that apparently was a gift that he never even played. So, so the history, though. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just looking at each other, just dumbfounded. <laughs> uh, my God. Can everyone just calm down? No. So, this past spring on uh, episode 28, we were joined by just the brilliant, brilliant Unli, who is an artist, an activist, an educator, and the executive director of the Dream Unfinished New York City's Activist Orchestra. And um, the conversation took went in an interesting direction when Lee asked her a very provocative question, and I will, I will start the conversation there. If you ruled the world, imagine that. What would you want to see different in how presenting organizations are engaging underrepresented communities? Ah, if I rule the world, what a dangerous start to a bunch of <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, 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 I'm. If people have heard me chat about this stuff before. Um, I really feel that we are in a very liminal time right now. And and what I mean by that is that it's a very imperfect and in-between time mm -hmm. where, you know, uh, because pointing to your earlier question of classical music being stuffy and behind the times, it was so behind the times that I think in many ways there is now this sort of pendulum swing um, really hard in the other direction that I don't know we necessarily want to find ourselves in, um, particularly with these, what I've observed, um, some institutions doing a sort of ambulance chasing, mm. where it's like, okay, something terrible and traumatic happens, let's have a concert, <laughs> something <laughs> terrible and traumatic happens, post it on social media, say who you stand with, and um, and because then that opens and invites the question of, well, where, w when were you standing with us before? Mm. You know, mm. like, like where, where are the receipts of <laughs> of that solidarity um, before everyone found themselves on Instagram? So, um, but I, I think that it, we are going to be in for this sort of bumpy and awkward period because we're reconciling with so much and so as far as if i rule the world and if things were my hope is that we are eventually able to actually move past this and be in a space where really a lot of these sorts of artistic statements are more implicit than explicit so you know it doesn't have to be all these bells and whistles of oh my god we're programming a black composer <laughs> 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 you know, but instead, it's like, oh, the black composer is actually next to like, like the, uh, um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to like David Baker, his music is next to Brahms and is next to Alice Mary Smith 
And, you know, this is just a good program. It, it doesn't have to be any awareness month. You know, no one had to have died recently. Like if this is, if, if, if orchestras are going in through their uh, mission statements of feeling that they want to be stewards of an art form, then be stewards of the art form and, and present a, a balanced program that also happens to be actually quite inclusive and representative um, and, and doesn't have to have all of this sort of fanfare that's associated with it. So, um, and, you know, I think it's doing things like that and then also really sort of rethinking how it is that they engage with their audiences. And, and um, you know, this is a thing that I had shared with uh, the team at Minnesota Opera that I hope I can also share with listeners to the podcast, but this idea of Sherry Arnstein's ladder of citizen participation. Um, so for listeners who um, aren't aware, it is this sort of framework or model um, that this sociologist Sherry Arnstein had devised. And it was actually originally created as a way of sort of asking and analyzing how it is that generally government agencies were working with communities in terms of any kinds of interventions, like perfect example being a playground. You know, did the community decide, number one, if they wanted the playground? <laughs> number two, <laughs> where the playground is? Number three, what the playground is made of? You know, like, like those sorts of questions, because so often there are people who mean really, really well, um, but then they just go and make the playground without actually asking anyone if they wanted a, the playground to begin with. Um, so that would be my other thing if I was this, you know, terrifying dictator. Um, <laughs> that how how we can get folks to actually really reflect on how it is that they are speaking with stakeholders, um, not and actually not just speaking with, but really authentically sharing power so that any sorts of um, programming that is meant to be based or sort of um, speak to a specific audience, that that specific audience has a voice, many voices at the table um, before anything is even implemented or operationalized. A question that's, that's coming up for me, and maybe because of, uh, as, as we talk about things like, like repertoire and especially what, um, especially with folks, what folks with resources can do. Something we've often talked about on this show is kind of the balance, especially when telling the stories. I think we've often talked about it in relation to Black folks, but really for any marginalized people, the balance of telling the truth, um, especially about our trauma uh, versus exploiting it and, and where that line is, knowing that we need, you know, some of everything like life is <laughs> life is complicated um and i just wonder like what your thoughts are on on that on especially this this trend of or, or what often feels like having so much of the bad and not our triumphs or at least something that's a little more complicated than just uh, a tragedy you know so i wonder what your thoughts are on on that balance and and even how you how you find it if there's a way that you <laughs> that you kind of strike that balance that's a tricky question because i think it's an evolving thing you know uh, so some of the actually all of the music that the dream unfinished has commissioned and premiered has been really in response to some sort of awful incident 
And, uh, you know, that was in our earlier years. And I think partially part of the reason why we had made those artistic choices was because that was still at a time when it was quote unquote, not really polite <laughs> to engage in those topics. Uh, I know that on this podcast, you've mentioned Joel Bentley Thompson and uh, his seven last words of the unarmed. And there was a time when actually there were ensembles that were too scared to program that piece. Um, whereas now in 2022, it, it's sort of the thing to program because it is unfortunately so topical and so relevant and so top of mind. So, um, so I think part of our rationale for when we did uh, make those commissions initially was because there, at that moment, at that particular moment, there really wasn't a space for artists who wanted to be composing and writing on these topics to then express themselves. Um, there wasn't really a, an, a, an opportunity to go into these issues that were clearly, th th that they wanted to be, you know, writing and, and generating work around. Um, so where we are now, uh, we, you know, actually we are working on some other commissions, but they are, as you said, Paige, decidedly not around these sorts of darker topics and instead trying to use, um, one of them is, and hopefully if I can get all of this ironed out, but one of them is going to be uh, really celebrating the poetry and legacy of James Emmanuel. And and so I think it is actually this, and I've heard you know you you all on this show mention uh, Black Joy and celebrating uh, the real sort of richness and 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 positivity that can come out of one's lived experience. Um, so I I do at least for this particular moment see us working with that goal in mind. But as far as a sort of like more evergreen answer to your question. I think it's really just, it, it's, it's on the artist. You know, I, I think that this is an, an, an instance where uh, as, a, as a presenter or as someone who is commissioning new work, that rather than making any sort of dictate or parameter around it that's um, constraining their artistic practice, to instead just try to provide as blank of a canvas as possible. And if the artist wants to celebrate one thing or, you know, commemorate another thing, that's, that is their choice. And however it is that we can really just be best supporting that choice. Um, I would really like to see, uh, you know, foundations and funders and arts institutions moving more in that trend rather than having this sort of wish list, because I think that gets into the sort of, um, commodification of trauma um, and and creating that sort of, um, you know, domino effect. Whereas I think, you know, artists want to, artists want to be artists and they want to make art and um, that art should be what they dictate and not what someone else has made the decision on behalf of them for. So this fall, we were also honored to be joined by the fantastic Garrett McQueen, who is an artist, an activist, a radio personality, um, host of the Triloquy podcast, among many, many other credits. Um, actually, we were also on the Triloquy podcast, Paige and Lee and I, um, around the same time in October. So 
head on over to Triloquy and check us out over there. Um, but we had a great conversation with Garrett, and we had um, a really interesting conversation about um, the norms in classical music and sort of the conditioning that we've all been brought up with and what are some of the ways that we can um, work to sort of decolonize our minds and sort of break free from some of that conditioning. So here's a snippet of that convo. Among the privileges that um, I think about is the fact that, again, I grew up in Memphis. I grew up in a predominantly black city. I grew up in a city that wasn't only predominantly black, but where people are just real. You know, I mean, people talk about how dangerous Memphis is and, and that sort of thing. And while that is true to a degree, I think it's just a population of people who don't accept <laughs> certain norms, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the further along I got in my career, the further away from that ecosystem I got. So I, I think that's really the main reason why I was forcing um you know, just my my point of view and perspective and and continue to force that into so many spaces, because it just doesn't make sense to me for, you know, there to be predominant or maybe not. I don't know. It it makes sense for some spaces to be predominantly white, I suppose. But for spaces to be all white, you know, or 99 percent white in today's world, that just that shouldn't make sense. To people unless you're living you know somewhere like anchorage alaska but but then even in that case we got to talk about the indigenous people so again we've we've just normalized the separation of of these spaces and that that has never been okay with me um i just so happened you know at my uh at my undergraduate institution university of memphis i studied with a black man shout out to uh, lacolian washington he's now uh, at the boston uh uh boston community music center uh, running that organization but you know so there was just there were conversations that we had that mirrored my upbringing you know so it was just also normal for me so again the the further along I got the further away from that ecosystem um, I got and I felt like I needed to change it I, I often think about Martin Luther King Jr you know people need to understand that a lot of his activism was rooted in something similar down in Atlanta there was a black fire station, a black uh, grocery store. There was a uh, black wealth, of course, the black church. So when he got out into the world and saw that, you know, not all black people got to live that way, he he wanted to change it. So that's that's really what I want to do in, in music. I just I just want people and, and not just black people. I do center on center that. But I just want everyone to be able to exist as they are in in their own spaces. So, you know, along a my long way of saying, you know, there are uh, several people that I can name, you know, my, my parents, shout out to Lacolian, you know, the, the hundreds of people that I've gotten to uh, dialogue with over the years in, in my work. But really, the the root of it is just having uh, blackness normalized and seeing it not normalized in classical music spaces and working to to bridge those gaps, build a bridge between those two realities. Yeah, because I mean, why do you think that is? Because I don't like to use the term predominantly white spaces. I prefer mm-hmm. white occupied spaces because I feel like predominantly white spaces like implies that there wasn't a choice that was being mm-hmm. made. Like, oh, mm-hmm. it's just naturally, oh, just you know, oh, we just like, <laughs> like a river, we just flow in this one direction. That's just <laughs> like, as if this wasn't like a deliberate choice that people were being made. Why do you think that is so prevalent in the classical music industry um, in particular? 
because it's uncomfortable. Like uh, you're, you're making a, an incredible point. There is intentionality behind everything in our world. Nothing is just because, and some of those whys are generations behind us and, and not as easy for us to identify uh, as, as it relates to their uh, contemporary manifestations. But yeah, it's just uncomfortable for um, uh, an orchestra patron or an opera patron to think about the fact that the space that they're in has been curated. You know, the, the audience experience that uh, they're, they're in is intentionally that. Um, once we, you know, can separate the emotions from all of those conversations, we can get to that space. That's why things like um, data and statistics are, are so important. You know, there are still a lot of people who just flinch up at the word black or the word white, you know, but if you just really look at the way um, marketing happens in most of the institutions, if you look at the way um, uh, development offices work when it comes to individual giving and institutional giving, when you look at all of these things, you see the energy being ported, uh, pointed to one specific community. I think that um, that way of being and that way of doing traditionally has been seen as neutral, you know, white whiteness being the norm or, or being the default, when in actuality, you are pointing at, at one global minority, at, you know, actually, at the end of the day, and relying solely on that. So I think we just need to um, amp up our bravery, put on our, our big boy, our big girl, our, our big per person pants and, you know, dig into these conversations and just and just realize the reality of it. Whiteness is not the default. It's not the norm. It's just what's been centered, certainly in, in uh, classical music. Could we take a, a, a thread from that? And, and pull on it just for a second, because I, I think what you're saying is something that a lot of folks need to hear, um, mm -hmm. especially one, that data is your friend in these instances. And, and then secondly, there is a history to understand if you're going to undo it, right? Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the, the things that you're working on either at ACO or ACF or anywhere else that actually work to do some of this undoing. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'll shout out ACF. Under the American Composers Forum umbrella is a digital publication called I Care If You Listen. And there are lots of incredible folks over there doing that data-driven work just to show what uh, gender breakdowns look like, to show um, how uh, time uh, uh, as it relates to certain events, you know, impacts or doesn't uh, impact programming. For example, you know, there has been violence in uh, the Middle East and across the African continent for decades now. Everyone jumped to making programming shifts as soon as there was violence in Ukraine, you know, and, uh, and of hmm. course, you know, our, our hearts go to those people, but that's just a reality that, that we have to, we have to face. I also think about, again, you know, thinking about all the people I've had an opportunity to dialogue with. I want to shout out uh, Titus Underwood. He's a black man, principal oboe of the Nashville symphony. And um, in our last com or in one of our conversations, you know, he made the incredible point that the vast majority of, of uh, the existing uh, arts institutions today, the larger ones were formed, if not during Jim Crow and straight up antebellum slavery. So why would 
black composers make the stages at those institutions at that time in history? You know, why would there be black performers or even audience members uh, allowed in those spaces with these institutions built during that time? So if that's the foundation of American classical music as it's been institutionalized, of course, you know, we see what we see today. It's just small truths like that, historical truths and contemporary truths that I believe have to be the starting point and the baseline of the work. Again, the way things look is not just how it happened to be, it's the way that it was manufactured to be. So there has to be intentionality in undoing some of that work and, and transforming the field. That goes all the way down um, with the way we use that phrase, classical music. You know, folks who listen to the Triloquy podcast know when I say that phrase classical music, I'm talking about any foundational music connected with culture. So I'm talking about the African djembe. I'm talking about the Chinese arhu, you know, the Japanese shamisen, the Indian vena and sitar, the American iteration of uh, guitar, uh, hip hop, gospel, jazz, all of those are classical musics. We have just been conditioned um, out of this fallacy of neutrality and what's the norm to uh, associate that phrase with a classical music tied to the culture of one very specific part of the world. So, so it's not to discount Beethoven and Brahms and Rachmaninoff and Puccini and all of those people. We just have to put the way we've been taught to think about that aesthetic of music into the larger context of white supremacy and what it means to actually, you know, affirm the culture of a people, the classical culture of a people that goes for food, that goes for architecture, that goes for fashion. But, you know, we're in this world of music. So that's that's what I, I center on, really helping people understand the context behind our reality so that we know how to move forward. So this past August, uh, we had a new team member uh, join the Impact team um, at Minnesota Opera, and we are so, so lucky um, to have Rick Hoops um, come aboard as um, one of our new youth music program directors. And they are an incredible educator, a brilliant artist, um, who whose main focus is on uh, degendering music education. And it's just such an amazing, wonderful topic because I think of all of us who have been through, um, you know, music education spaces um, and perhaps were um, not cisgender white folks, um, perhaps found the, um, the experience um, a little lacking in some ways. And so Rick has come in and really sort of transformed a lot of our youth music programs, um, Youth Opera Circle and Youth Opera Studio, along with the rest of the team, um, and have really turned these programs into something really, really special and amazing. And so we wanted to have um, Rick come on and uh, talk a little bit about their work. And so uh, check out that conversation. Well, you know, the I will say this and and hopefully I will not embarrass you at all, Rick, but when we met you, you were actually interviewing for a totally different role. And as the interview was going, I kept thinking there is something else I would really like for them to be doing with us. And and I kind of took the 
very weird route I'm saying in the middle of the interview. Um, how do you feel about being considered for a different role that I haven't even made up yet? Because as I was listening to you, I kept having this feeling of, I wish we could go back in time 30 years ago when I was in middle school and really started working on my own singing in, in a more uh, formalized way and wishing I had a teacher like you who is expressing those kinds of sensitivities. We've, we've sort of joked a little bit about it on the show that growing up I had a, a higher voice, I suppose I still do. And, <laughs> you know, in middle school, always singing with the girls, right, was a, was not a super comfortable thing as it was. And then the ways that teachers perhaps were expressing their own discomfort with it, right? made me the the hyper visibility wasn't great and then the fact that there were always complications in casting and that being sort of placed on my body also wasn't good right and i internalized a lot of stuff simply because folks didn't have have the information to guide me or other students or themselves in a way, and I think the only reason that I just didn't give up singing, which was so fraught at the time, was because I was so damn good at it, to be perfectly honest. So I well, thought about when. I, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the truth is just the truth. Be honest with yourself, I know. Never that. <laughs> so when we met you and you came in and you were expressing certain things, I was, I'd already been thinking about this program and where we wanted to go with it. And I really knew that I wanted your brain power your perspectives, your expertise lent to how we were going to hopefully open this up for a very significant portion of the kids who grow up performing, right? And, and so many of us feel that. So I, I kind of wanted to just give you a, an opportunity to talk a little bit about what has informed your perspectives and, um, and maybe sharing some of these perspectives with our audience. Yeah, thank you so much. That was very sweet. Um, a lot of what I try to do as a teacher is informed by my experience with teachers in the past and the teachers I wish I had had and did not. I had some wonderful teachers, but it was a long time before I experienced a positive queer role model. Um, and I don't really think I ever experienced a queer singing teacher in my in my history. So that led me to feeling really stuck in like a highly feminine performance. Like I am a coloratura soprano. So I sing this like crazy high rep and there's kind of this assumption that I'm supposed to look or act a certain way. Um, and that through college kind of got me stuck in a performance and a, a gender identity really that didn't align with, with who I am. And I think the pandemic let a lot of people experience their gender in a new way. And I am one mm. of those people. <laughs> so um, a lot has changed and it's really informed my teaching. Um, something I have been developing is, is it's now like 11 pages long, but it's a, it's a resource for kind of guiding teachers and directors and, and arts administrators in how we can approach these things without making students feel othered because that's something I experienced a lot and I think a lot of queer students experience is not feeling like they really belong in any spaces and they have to kind of tiptoe around their identities for fear of not being taken seriously not getting the roles um, 
So something that I really recommend for teachers is just challenging the language that you have been taught. Um, we hear a lot of male voice, female voice, but that's not even biologically accurate. Like we have intersex people that exist in the world who at birth are not able to be identified as male or female. And there are scholars who have written for many years that we actually need five to six biological categories of sex. So really we already can extrapolate that the false dichotomy of biological sex needs to be like challenged in, in a big way. Um, so instead of using, you know, male voice, female voice, men's chorus, women's chorus, you know, we can rely on our FAQ framework that we already have, just making it a little more flexible, you know, not pressuring people to gender themselves a certain way based on FAQ. Even the idea of having like boy sopranos, right, is kind mm -hmm. of problematic because maybe they're not boys maybe they're just sopranos and they don't look the way you expect them to look and that's that's okay so I think that's probably one of my biggest recommendations for teachers that can actually be really easy if we just take the time to make ourselves relearn something a little bit but I think that's where people really have a hold up is they're not willing to relearn there's a lot of defensiveness and in, in the expertise they feel they have and their expertise is not flexible um, which I think is, is a big problem. So we were actually just talking about that in the previous segment, <laughs> <laughs> that inflexibility. Yeah. And where do you think that that stems from? A long line of everyone teaching the same way, I, I think mm -hmm. has a lot to do with it. Um, there's a lot of pressure in opera to kind of get through these stages. You know, you're supposed to go to college, win competitions, go to grad school, win more competitions and, and go off and be in a young artist program and be really successful. You know, there's like this, this pressure. And then the people who have followed that path are our teachers and their knowledge is really valuable. But at the same time, there are ways that they have been taught that were probably damaging to them in ways they don't understand. And now what I think we see is students are identifying those things that have been harmful and they're kind of calling them out and saying, actually, that doesn't relate to my experience. So I'd prefer we didn't, we didn't use that exercise or you didn't explain it that way. Like that doesn't connect with me. And I think that's where that defensiveness can come in and that mm -hmm. inflexibility is because, well, that's how they were taught, you know, like what's wrong with that? Like I turned out really well, I did really well in this industry. So this is how it happens. Um, but I think we just need to kind of adjust that and understand that everybody's path to success is different. And also what even is success? <laughs> like we, we can all follow different paths and still be successful we don't need to all be taught the same things the same way um so yeah i think it's just kind of an entrenched method of teaching that we've had for a very long time in in opera and classical music in general i i also i think about i mean maybe because we've heard so much about like challenging especially teaching norms across the board and like <laughs> from everything from elementary schools and music education everywhere how do like the in where does intersectionality come into this for you um 
and and what you've been developing or or even in your own life experience and that can be with 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 gender and disability with gender and race with gender and, and class all the all of that of course is always pleasant in the present in the classroom as, as well so how's that coming up for you so far yeah, I think um, for me, as I've been making this resource, I've been trying to form it in a way that it can be applied to other forms of justice work, because my original framework is for queer justice and in, in vocal music organizations. But mm. I really think that a, a lot of the recommendations I'm making can be transferred to other forms of justice work. Mm. Um, for example, I have a big section about asking our students for consent before we have them do something or before we touch them. I don't even touch my students almost ever because I think it's, you know, it's you have to have a very clear conversation about why and where and what it's going to do. Um, or even something like mirror work, right? Like someone looking in the mirror and being asked to look in the mirror by their teacher and just experience their body we don't know what history of trauma they have. We don't know how their body has been marginalized in the past and how that affects them emotionally still. You know, like we have so many practices that we haven't really zoomed in on and thought, how does this affect people with intersectionally marginalized identities, right? Like someone who is disabled and queer might look in the mirror and have a really hard time experiencing their body in a public, like, you know, it's one teacher and one student, but that still feels really public. It's, it's not a personal space. So I think intersectionality is always on my mind and I definitely need to do more work as I develop um, these resources to include um, people of the global majority as I work on like racial justice and equity and, and wrapping that in here. So I've, I've been lucky to speak to a couple of colleagues who have given me some great input, but I definitely think we have to consider intersectionality and, and understand that justice work can really be connected to each other. So justice for one group of people can really translate into justice for a lot more groups of people. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, um, to your earlier point, some of my doctoral work concerned um, the history of vocal pedagogy and also the history of conservatory programs. And really, one of the takeaways is that in the last, you know, 130 years, the, the ways that we teach have not changed, like, whatsoever, right? We could go back to the first decade of the 20th century, and, and it will feel very, very similar to, you know, what how I experienced music education in college and to how you experience it as well, Rick. And some of the thinking behind Youth Opera Studio and Youth Opera Circular, our two new classes have been pulling away from the gender and pulling away from the racialized pieces as well. And Rick is team teaching that with two other folks, Sarah Sawyer, who's been with us for a number of years, and Jared Miller, who has also taught with us for the last couple of years. And I, if there are things that you can share about some of how you're thinking about Youth Opera Studio and Youth Opera Circle as opportunities to do that differently, um, it would be great to to hear that in advance of the auditions on August 29th. Ooh. Absolutely. Um, it's been a really exciting process to be part of this curriculum development. And I think 
where I've been coming from is really making sure that we can dig in, but also zoom out and see how things can affect students. Um, so in designing even our audition forms, right? Thinking about what questions can we ask? What questions do we need to ask again in, in different spaces? Like how can we engage with students in a way where they can be open with us? Um, and also how can we engage with parents and the community to make them feel like this is a good place to send their students that's going to be mm. welcoming. Um, so we're still in the thick of curriculum development, but I'd really like to see us continue to move forward with care when it comes to what our exercises are going to be, what repertoire we're picking for people, um, when it comes to rehearsal tracks or giving students examples of great singers, you know, who, which singers are we putting in front of them, right? We don't have to keep putting the same singers in front of them over and over again. Um, so just continuing to move forward in a way where we're really considering all aspects of our decisions. How, what is the impact really going to be on a variety of different groups of people? Um, because I've experienced a lot of you know, classes myself or looking at curriculums that I've taught through other places. And I feel like that, that amount of attention just hasn't been put in. And I think that's you know, square one. How can we really make inclusive, equitable, accessible, diverse spaces, we have to be that considerate from the get-go. We can't just change or adapt when we're asked to. We have to kind of anticipate what the best practice for right now is going to be. And I think that's something that we're doing and are gonna continue doing as we develop Youth Opera Circle and Youth Opera Studio. So if there are any parents out there that feel like this is the program for their child. Um, so you mentioned that auditions are August 29th. How can people uh, get involved or get their, sign their kid up for auditions? Well, I believe there is an audition form that is live now. Um, Lee, do you know where that has been posted or who they can email to get access to that form? Absolutely. Um, our very capable manager of our education programs, Faye Chen, can answer all of your questions and you can reach Faye at y-c-h-e-n at mnopera.org. A big shout out to Faye who's been doing the Absolutely. Herculean task of Oof of keeping <laughs> the, the trains moving um, as Trying they to need to. coordinate all of us. <laughs> and, and doing it with a smile as well. So um, very, very excited for the work that all four of you have been putting in. And um, also to Pablo Siqueiros, who formerly was with the company, who um, who's really thoughtful leadership of the programs for the two years prior has really helped us to get to a place where this dream of mine is now a, a reality for young folks in the Twin Cities. Um, so yeah, super, super excited about it. It is exciting. Truly, truly exciting. I cannot wait to see how it all goes down because it's going to be fantastic. I know, I'm like, <laughs> sooner than I'm we just think. waiting. Yes. I know it feels like it's so far away, but then I'm going to blink and it's like, oh my gosh, we have to, <laughs> we have to take rep for everyone now. It's going to yeah. be so soon. It's already like tomorrow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I didn't want to say that, but yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, Rick, this has been illuminating and so excited for the work that you are embarking upon. Cannot wait to see um, everything that happens um, in the next few months, the next few years, and hopefully this makes a huge impact Um, when it comes to opera education, because I just think it has the potential to just be something that's really special, really exciting, really, really changes the game. So in May, uh, Minnesota Opera mounted an incredible production of Carmen, Bizet's Carmen, um, directed by the legendary Denise Graves. Um, and in the run-up to the show, we did several um, several shows about Carmen, um, one of which featured um, one of the singers who sang Carmen, um, an incredible young Black mezzo-soprano named Zoe Reams. And she was kind enough to um, watch 2001's um, Carmen Hip Hop Opera, starring, of course, our fave, Beyonce Giselle Knowles-Carter. Um, and to sit down and talk to us about her impressions. And so we had a good time um, with Zoe. So um, <laughs> please enjoy uh, this next snippet with Zoe Reams. Well, switching gears a little bit, um, <laughs> since you are about to uh, make your uh, Minnesota de- a debut as Carmen, <laughs> um, we thought it would be super fun to go back into the archives and watch uh, 1998's uh, Carmen, a hip opera, <laughs> starring one Miss Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter, the queen. <laughs> yes, absolutely, always. Because, <laughs> you know, we stand on this podcast, so any... Any excuse to get, you know, Giselle in there. Oh, it's from 2001. Oh, my bad. 2001. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Love it. Love 2001. Okay. <laughs> excuse me. Directed, of course, by the legendary Robert Townsend. Yes, absolutely. We have to give him his flowers as well. Um, but I realized in watching it that, like, as much as MTV as I was watching in the late 90s, early 2000s, <laughs> and as much as I was standing, then Destiny's Child and Beyonce, I had never seen it before, but I know. Shame. I know, right? <laughs> I had heard about it like in college, I think. Um, someone had brought it up and I had actually only seen Carmen Jones, <laughs> which is a testament to basically my mom and and her being you know of that era and being like one of our favorite things to do is watch black and white movies um and even though that's not you know black and white it's earlier much earlier than uh 2001 hip uh carmen um but yeah i i think someone and i didn't believe it at first someone was like oh yeah beyonce blah 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 and carmen i was like i just heard beyonce and carmen and i was like (laughs) 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 and i didn't have to dig that far but i found i found it and i was like i was i was i was took i was like wow (laughs) okay i mean i have to say i was impressed i was i I had a good i had a good time <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I know people that don't love it, but at the same time, she's holding her own. Like, mm. and I also think 
for me seeing it, I I expected her to sing and the men to rap. And I love that she raps. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of my favorite things about it is that I just, I love that she raps because I think it shows like, I mean, a lot of people, I think also a lot of people don't realize like things about opera in general and how kind of rough it is. Mm-hmm. But like Carmen is, Carmen is, lives a very fringe life like actual Carmen, like how she, how she moved to the world in today's modern society would be considered rough, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of time people see this like opera heightened version. And we're kind of talking about this too, about, you know, the actual novella compared to the opera, Bizet's Carmen. It's like this elevated, like kind of, uh, coy but still sweet and sexy version of Carmen whereas like the novella Carmen she's rough like <laughs> <laughs> <he> rough <laughs> you know what I mean and, like I like that she was hanging with the boys in the hip hopper because that's what C- Carmen would really be doing um I appreciated that and I think that a lot of times people don't really like understand what's going on in opera like it was funny I had a conversation with my mom and I was like, yeah, so then they, you know, the whole kind of act three and four, I'm like, yeah, and then they take the contraband. And she was like, contraband? I don't know that part. And I'm like, yeah, Ma, like, they're literally smugglers. Like, that's what's happening in this opera. And she's like, oh, I don't remember that. I'm like, yeah, the same way that no one remembers the Queen of the Night aria is, you know, someone's mother telling them to kill someone else. And if they don't do it, that they're going to kill her. Like, no one, no one remembers that, right? Like, oh, it's just like you know (laughs) 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 but it's like the core of what's actually happening is like very intense and dramatic um which is another reason i think that basically opera needs to be everywhere because what more drama do you need in your life besides that (laughs) anyway that's tangent that's tangent but yeah i love carmen the hip opera i love that she raps and i think it's fun and cute i know people who don't love it but i kind of love it you know, um, it your your point about Beyonce as a rapper is a really interesting one to me because I remember I hadn't seen it in 21 years. I watched it when it came out because of my obsession with Beyonce and my ongoing interest with adaptations of opera and theater in what I consider to be the real world, right? And <laughs> the the challenge I had with it as a college student watching it was the idea that Beyonce, as my generation's preeminent vocalist, was cast in a role and then asked not to sing, right? And because Beyonce is such a sophisticated musician, she negotiates the hip hop extremely well, right? But I kept wanting there to be like one of these moments where the emotion gets really heightened. And instead of her like rapping kind of in the middle of her voice, like she would like, plant her right foot, throw her head back and like give us a full throated something. Because I think the challenge for me, and I will say again before the beehive comes from me, I have been in love with this woman since the mid nineties. There is not a question of anything other than her utilization. And it is simply (laughs) this idea that like, because growing up, I was very into women rappers. Like it, it was something that I found so compelling. 
there are people who actually really do what they were asking Beyonce to do, right? Like, I, I can't get over this idea that Foxy Brown and Eve weren't sitting at home watching the hip hop or being like, <clears throat> right? Like, there's this <laughs> whole cohort. Ah, Foxy Brown! <laughs> That's hilarious. I, you know, I just kind of wondered, like, you know, Emil, Soleil, Mia X, there were all of these women yeah. who, like, were making so much money, Lil' Kim, right? Selling yeah. sexuality, hardness, and hip-hop. And, and they kind of went with Beyonce, who is extraordinary, but especially, like, late 90s, early 2000s Beyonce didn't really sit in that space of like owning her sexuality in totally. the same way right and there were moments mm -hmm. of it that like because i watched them back to back mm -hmm. uh carmen jones and then um oh cool and carmen then the hip-hopper there's a way that like dorothy dandridge negotiates every bodily movement every arch of the eyebrow oh my gosh right with like this with, <laughs> so good absolute aplomb that Beyonce hasn't yet developed into the performer, she's only 20 at the time, right? Who yeah. can do the same kinds of things. I mean, that said, like she had some great moments, right? Um, she manages to pull all of the emotions where they need to be, the way they switched up the death at the end. Like, yeah. you know, I felt like I was really, really here for it. Um, and I appreciated a lot the supporting cast. Um, I mm -hmm. forgot that Makai Pfeiffer used to look like Hi. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that, yeah. Okay. Police officer Makai. Uh oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there were no there were moments like between like Rod Digga, uh most deaf, their relationship to rap it's just very different from Beyonce because they yeah. are differently skilled, right? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't quite let go of that mm -hmm. because because I can't, I guess I couldn't, I was just so present to how outside of her skill set Beyonce yeah. was sitting. So whatever else was going on, she also had to like, I have to make this work. And then right. they kept reminding us by like giving us backgrounds of destiny's child songs that like you know, she... <laughs> you're like wait what <laughs> right it's like she does other things we're just not asking her yeah. to do any of them but again like i it's an enjoyable way to spend an hour and 45 minutes right, right. like it it is very very fun i just wish what is singing at like that's all i kept coming back 100 i mean it's interesting because i i felt it's funny as i'm working through carmen Bizet's Carmen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I find myself, and this is another thing going back to kind of like the heightened version of it, right? Like if you really look at the source material and the score, a lot of music that Carmen sings is dance music or mm -hmm. folk song-esque mm -hmm. of, of her time and place. Um, it's not this heightened like overdone perfectly operatic music mm -hmm. um i mean the music in itself is amazing and perfect and beautiful <laughs> but the way that she comes off singing it like i said before a lot of it some of it she sings to herself um these are just songs that she knows that people happen to just stand around and want to watch her sing it because it's the most compelling thing they're going to see all day and i think that like I liked, 
I liked the rapping part because it was closer to speech. And I think something that I'm learning as I'm learning the role is bringing, bringing the singing closer to speech. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I think Jose really has the more heavy lifting in terms of singing opera, if you will. I mean, I'm still going to approach it with my operatic instrument, but the way that the music is, his emotion is translated in the actual music where Carmen, and this is also a test to her personality, where she doesn't really let people in and she doesn't let people you know, know what she's thinking, but she's just singing songs. A lot of them are songs versus an aria or some grand emotional gesture, which is pretty much all Jose does every time he opens his mouth, you know, is extremely torn and extremely vulnerable and extremely heightened emotion, right? Um, whereas Carmen opens her mouth and sings the Habanera, which is a complete dance melody, or the Segadilla, or, I mean, there are very few pinpointed parts in this where I would say maybe in the duet, and maybe you could argue for the card aria um, in Act Three. Other than that, um, a lot of what she's doing is reacting. <laughs> and and uh, I think it, it would, you know, dare I say, let me not get fired. It would translate closer <laughs> to like rap or speech versus some operatic aria. Um, and I think that's what I identified with it in, in the hip hop was her closeness. I appreciated her not singing because the closeness of rap to speech um, was something that I identified with in the actual opera itself. Um, and I thought that was cool. I thought, of course, they could have had, they could have wrote, somebody could have wrote some music. Quincy Jones could have been up in there. Some, you know, they could have done something, <laughs> but they didn't do that. And I think it's interesting um, because it would have been easy to have most deaf, you know, have something on there or something mm-hmm. like, but they didn't, they didn't do that. And I think it kind of pulls the actual source material, Carmen, into 2001, which is like a cool parallel thing for me to see. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there there were a lot of pieces that I was thinking about relative to the overall construction of it, right? Like how they were utilizing the music because it it was very apparent that like the, the proximity between speech and uh, music utilizing hip hop as that instrument totally. is very important and, and very logical. Where some of my critiques did come in is what they chose to musicalize as, as opposed <laughs> to what they left as a scene, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And then, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, a hundred percent, I agree with you. There were some funny parts that I was like, wait, girl, what? Why did you, right. <laughs> why did you do that? <laughs> And and then kind of like, a, so Reagan Gomez Preston and Joy Bryant are two of my more favorite actresses from, you know, 90s transitioning into the, the 2000s, right? And I felt like with both of them, it was like a curious underutilization, mm-hmm. uh, especially like- I felt the same way. Yeah, like Michaela is a 
very interesting character and i think reagan was such a good choice because she has like this really sweet disposition absolutely gorgeous like she has this girl next door quality and then it's like we are going to give you nothing to do and it's like Mm -hmm. can can y'all find (laughs) this lady to do in this movie so that part was a little weird to me but yeah no i could have been something where she was you know once she realizes what has transpired with her fiance, right. there could have mm-hmm. been a sickening bar there. Mm, there could have yes. been like, yes. like a good, I'm leaving you, Bob. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I live mm-hmm. for that. No, she just slapped him and said, I hate you and ran away. I know. <laughs> like, girl. That's <laughs> all you got? <laughs> we definitely need like a woman scoring a moment, especially with the liberties that they took at the end. Mm-hmm. I feel like, why not? take some more liberties like might as well like have a moment that's so true I never really thought about that but yeah we definitely needed that moment of like spotlight woman scorned like I am out of here girl bye that vibe yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and speaking of the music like I guess one of the critiques I, I don't I did enjoy it I enjoyed it so much my whole I love how we're like it. we love it it please don't come for me please don't please. come for us <laughs> if it were to be done again mm. like I would love to see more utilization of just like the different types of hip hop even mm-hmm. to articulate mm-hmm. different oh, yeah. moments. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Like how dope would that be if there was like in if there was more of a southern rap vibe at some point mm-hmm. where it fit or something sounds like more or Blaze was more... a little bit more West Coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little G Funk in there mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Like I would definitely that's what I would want to explore if it were that's really cool, yeah. done again. Because hip hop has so many different colors and that's so, so many different flows and all of that. I think I think most deaf tried to bring us a little bit of that. Who I I appreciated so much watching yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one I already love Yasin Bay. Yes, uh, Yasin Bay is Bay. Um, <laughs> love him, and it was just so good at playing like a very sly mm-hmm. character, and the way he just flows like fit it perfectly. I <laughs> I had I, to tell like my housemates like y'all actually I think this is way more interesting yeah. than maybe <laughs> the, how the character turns out in the opera. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's- true and I think like everyone does kind of have their own little I mean that's a that's a super like operatic thing to do right like mm-hmm. everyone has like we're talking about like Wagner light motifs like mm-hmm. except like <laughs> rap like that's like what we're saying which I think is like really cool and like no I totally agree like Beyonce and her crew have music and like even there are parts in um in the score where you know Jose, you are reminded that he's a soldier with the way that he sings or or even the way that Carmen imitates him, mm-hmm. um, which is really fun and interesting too. Like she imitates, you know, bugle horns and things like this. And um, yeah, that was, that's a really good idea. I never thought about that, but I love that. Different types of rap. I love it. Well, now all I'm thinking about is little Cam as Carmen. <laughs> uh, oh my god can you imagine can or you a imagine remake, a remake with like meg the stallion 
Oh my yes. god. Oh. Yes. oh yes. Oh, we just made a million oh, hold dollars. On. <laughs> <laughs> copyright, 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 copyright. Yeah. So I'm gonna write that down. Like literally, I feel like Meg or even like, I don't know if you guys know her name, but um, well, her name is literally no name. Um, I love no name. I feel like somebody like that, like a true like lyricist, how insane would that be like? And I feel like she would totally be in her element. I also think it would be interesting like for her to speak on like, because Carmen also kind of does this too, like to speak on her life, like to just be able to speak on her life and her culture and like no name, just like, that's what she does. Um, I'm kind of sad she's like no longer really making music and that like hurts my feelings, but um, she's actually, a, a, I don't, I'm not gonna say she's my friend, but my our moms, <laughs> Our moms are really close, and I've oh, met wow. Yeah, our moms oh are gosh. close, and I've met her once, and I think that would be something that's like really like up her alley, and I think she would really be able to bring something like super cool to that. Yeah. yeah now that you bring up someone like No Name, like another thing I appreciated about the hip hop is just like there's some interesting like intracommunal dynamics amongst black folks that it is mm -hmm. more like it's like what you're saying about the novel being more gritty than yeah. the opera like I feel like the hip hop got back to some of that and like mm -hmm. the dynamic with among I mean among the cops and or among right. people view them or you know the I the friends running off like with this rapper or whatever is like just yeah, like yeah. really real as <laughs> <laughs> or you know chasing the fame or the money and you know getting excited and swept away no, by real, that yeah. and like I feel like someone like no name or like other like really thoughtful MCs could get into that even further no 100% like I think totally that would be like uh, a like a version of like literally uplifting the culture because they would totally and they would also murder it like it would be so good like yeah <laughs> so earlier i mentioned um the production of carmen that was directed by denise graves well we were blessed and highly favored we did something good in a past life because we were able to sit down um, this past May with the legend herself. So here is a little snippet of our conversation with, I mean, just somebody who has been just such an inspiration to all of us for such a long time. So please enjoy this uh, snippet of our conversation with the legend, the voice, Denise Graves. So I had the wonderful pleasure of being in the rehearsal room for a couple of days about a week and a half ago, and I was really taken by the deft hand that you had with the cast and the approach you took. Um, I was watching very closely when you would speak with Maya or Wanwi, and I could hear the kinds of things you were saying that were really about character development and also building the relationships between the characters and you know it was really wonderful to see because you did it in such a 
thoughtful, knowledgeable, warm way where I could also feel the affection you had for the piece. And I think that that lends a lot of support to something I know Rocky and Paige also feel strongly about, which is that our industry needs to see more Black women directing opera. Mm -hmm. Could you share how a move in that direction with more Black women, more women of color directing could be beneficial for the whole art form? It's a whole other perspective. It's a whole other perspective entirely. You know, one of the things that we say at my foundation at the Denise Grace Foundation is that we want to provide a space for, for people to be in the room at the table, mm. right? Um, I would say this, that I, I believe that most people in the world are good, honest, and decent people. But then we've got the other few, mm. right? The rascals. Mm -hmm. And people don't know what they don't know. Look, you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, I, you know, I was 13 years old and I said, I wanted to be an opera singer. I had no idea what that meant. I knew what that meant. And one day I want to get married. I had no idea what that meant. You got to be in it to know it, right? It, it, you, you can't read about it. You have to experience it. And until there are other perspectives in the room, you don't realize that you've got a blind spot and several of them. And you don't realize that this world is made up of all of us. Everybody's voice is important. There is no one voice more important than somebody else's. God created every single person to be individual, to bring something to this human experience that we're all having here. And particularly now in this era where we're in this sort of consciousness where people are really looking at belonging and it's so, so, so interesting how the pandemic stilled us all. Okay, pause globally. Okay, everybody, we're gonna take a chill pill like everybody. We're gonna be quiet right now. And we're gonna see what we see. And people could see unfolding pandemics on many different levels, right? Now we've been saying some of it the whole time, but the great fortune is that now people have cameras. Mm -hmm. And people can see for themselves, like, we're not making this up. Mm -hmm. We've been saying this the whole time. This thing's happening, right? But people could see it for themselves. And um, I'm going to say something may give me a little bit in hot water because I don't know if you're red or blue. But I remember after the um, last election, some of my friends said, like, this is not the country that I thought it was. And I was like, it's the country I thought it was. <laughs> but, um, you know, but some people were shocked. And I, and I understand that. You don't know what you don't know, but until you come out of your comfort zone, until you stretch out across the aisle, until you meet somebody else who's not like you, all you've got are these stereotypes. Yeah. That's all you've got, right? And so I'm saying all of that to answer your question. Like, why is it important? because the world is made up of all of us and everybody has a unique and important story to tell and a very different perspective. And you can't have, a, and we certainly, we also think of the, the theater in particular as being a place that transcends all of that stuff. When you listen to something beautiful, I think that the judgmental mind stops. You see a beautiful baby, you say, oh my goodness, look at that child. Look at that gorgeous baby, no matter 
what what they are or if we oh, we hear something funny we all laugh we don't know where the origins of that who, who made that joke or who, you know when we hear something beautiful i think our judgmental mind stops and we immediately go into our hearts and that's another thing that the pandemic really showed us what was essential right because we what were we doing we were reading books we're listening to music, we're watching movies. We leaned on the arts as an anchor to keep us upright and to make us human in a time where of such incredible uncertainty that nobody had any information on how we were gonna get out of this thing or how it was gonna work, especially when it first hit and people were dying like crazy and we were all panicked and didn't know what this crazy, contagion was that was in our midst and we were all at home reconnected with things that are important with our families right with our friends with art with all that and it's not until you it's it's really not until you have the opportunity to really look outside of yourself that you can really appreciate that our experiences here are greater than just our life experiences there's something going on here that is greater than who we are as individual human beings. And that's that, you mentioned Maya Angelou to quote, we are more alike than unalike. Mm. The, the thing that binds us together are our humanity, our love, our hearts, the, the same, all of the things that we all share in the whole wide world, right? But people have all kinds of different experiences, like, you know, e e you can go to the you can go to the store one way i can go another way and on that route something happens to you that does not happen to me and i have a very different experience and we bring that because it reminds us why is it important because it reminds us that we're more alike than unalike it reminds us that you might be asian you might be i don't know what you might be french you might be black you might be white the thing that connects us all together are is our humanity right? There are so much that we share across the board. I don't care who you are. Everybody wants their children to have a good life. We all want to have good lives, right? We want that for our parents. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be happy. We want that for ourselves. We want that for the people that we love. We all want that. Everybody wants the same thing, right? But when you see that people do life and have very, very different life experiences, what it does is I think it makes you more compassionate. I think it makes you a more tolerant and compassionate individual. And then you don't judge and say like, oh, all Asians are like this. All black people are like this. All white people are like that. Because you have experiences that tells you differently. But until you have those experiences, all you have is the conditioning that's out there. And it's out there, it's out there. Uh, my, my girlfriend was telling me the other day that her little daughter who's three years old said, you know, um, she was talking about a little girl who had short hair and say, well, all women are supposed to have, all girls are supposed to have long hair. Now at three, she got that message from somewhere. It came through loud and clear. It's a lie, but that's what she received. And they receive everything else too, right? And so that's why when they, you know, the cop asked that white policeman who killed the black boy, why did you do it? And he said, I don't know. I totally believe him. 
because somewhere he got the message in his bed in the bedrock of his foundation that black men are evil and dangerous and to be feared and all this stuff that's why it's so gorgeous to see you know lee sitting there with a beautiful you know uh, talking about this story with this beautiful you know carmen picture and to see you know rocky there talking about opera and telling this story and bringing this story to the masses because we don't see you doing that we don't see your faces doing that we're happy to see your faces in all the films that'll show every uh scene in jail or hanging out on the corner or all of this stuff that we have been just inundated with our whole life this incredible lie that everybody drank the kool-aid from everybody including us that's the most dangerous part is that we believe we're not supposed to like rise to a certain and but i think that that has changed and I think that that is changing. Look at these four beautiful, beautiful brown faces. I could, it breaks my heart wide open. I could cry. Talking about opera, which some people consider to be a white European art form, right? Like, what are you doing there? We can accept that you could sing hip hop, right? Or gospel music. We can, we can accept that, but we can't accept this, right? So the reason it's important is because we break down and we break down these lies and the stereotypes and we open up people's consciousness and awarenesses that this stuff that we've been telling is a lie and it's hurt us all. It's hurt black people, it's hurt white people, it's hurt Asian people, it's hurt all of us, right? And so now we had that period of incredible stillness when we started looking at saying, is this the kind of world that we want to have? Is this the world that we want to live in? And now we're piecing it back together. And of course, we could not end the year without a little bit of pure black joy. Um, so <laughs> we came back from summer break and it turns out it was the Renaissance. Um, so I think this was the purest, blackest, most joyful um, we were all year. Um, and so um, <laughs> take a listen to us um, just um, losing our minds over Renaissance, which rightly so. And I hope you all are still losing your minds over Renaissance and that Beyonce gets all of her things when these Grammys come around. Okay, let me just, I'll stop. Enjoy the conversation. <laughs> yes, it is time for Pure Black Joy, where we celebrate all of the Black people, places, things, ideas that are making us happy this week. Um, I think it goes without saying... Y'all, we are in the middle of the Renaissance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Honey. So, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and we could do a whole episode about this album. I, and maybe we will. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I think it is a masterpiece. I think it is sublime. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's everything <laughs> wow like i don't even re- I, it's hard to put it. so have your feelings about break my soul changed at all lee now that the the album is out no but perhaps this is a great segue 
to my pure black joy. Oh, okay. Because um, it is related to the House of Queens Vogue remix, mm. which is my my absolute joy. Um, <laughs> I just have to say, like the idea of giving flowers to people while they are still around and acknowledging the uh, sort of uh, artistic through line that has created Beyonce's aesthetic and just people that she likes. Um, and on that remix where she gives so much acknowledgement to a group of Black women who have been uh, really critical to my own development as an artist and just as a person who listens to music, um, that song made me so mm-hmm. happy, especially the fact that she dropped Sister Rosetta Tharp's name. Um, you know, like little bits like that. The fact that she said Grace Jones and Aaliyah twice, like those <laughs> kinds of acknowledgments uh, meant a lot to me, as did the um, the pure honey existence and uh, Moi Renee getting her flowers, you know, yes. 35 years after her death. I, I was very, very happy and surprised by that. Like it was the middle of the night and I was texting people and I was really expecting to get cussed out because you're not supposed to text people after like midnight. But other friends of mine were also listening at the same time and having exactly the same reaction. Um, Miss Honey was a Miss formative Honey. song in our <laughs> college years when we discovered it. So yeah, the the album, you know, it's it hit me in all the places it needed to, and you know, I'm planning to do a thing with it myself. More details coming oh. soon. Okay. Ooh, okay. It, it was definitely the homage paid in it that just got to me too like uh like i i feel like she i don't know i feel like i one i feel like we got a different view we got like a a different kind of view into what Beyonce listens to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what she's been rocking with. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I feel <laughs> like I know you in a different way. B. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. especially as I listened to it multiple times, like the layers, I was just like, Oh, okay, girl. Okay. <laughs> okay, girl. You tap you tapped in in some ways that I I did not know. And just the different genres of like electronic music, black electronic music mm-hmm. that she explored. There was I love when someone can do a clear mixture of putting their spin on it and keeping things like to that simple like essence like this is straight up gonna sound like chicago house Mm -hmm. i'ma put some stank on it later but like (laughs) (laughs) let me just like give it to you straight for a minute or i uh oh it was so (laughs) good just so good and i also the third thing that i loved about it was that to me to fully understand it it had to be an embodied experience 
you have to let yourself dance to it. Mm-hmm. Yes. You yes. have you have to. Yes. I didn't fully get it until I danced to it. <laughs> until I had to like I really like let loose and I would just you had the speakers with the good bass on it and just <laughs> let yourself your whole body start bobbing and yeah yeah so if, if you think it's not if you ain't really rocking with it yet try dancing to it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if anyone out there is not a believer yet just just try it just try it and see how you feel and for me it's just this unabashed just celebration of just black queerness for me and it is just so beautiful there just not a whole lot of spaces where black queer folks are celebrated and if they are it is for some capitalistic purpose or it's for (laughs) to sort of steal Mm -hmm. some of the innovations and just the beauty of what we do in order to sort of repurpose it for some bs but like Mm -hmm. here is just this pure beautiful distillation just this look at this beautiful culture over here yeah and dance and enjoy and learn about the history learn about some of these artists learn about like why this is such a special and it just made me as a queer black person just feel so seen and so loved (laughs) like it felt like there was just like a warm hug around me while I was getting my life and shaking my ass like (laughs) (laughs) I'm also being hugged um and it was just it was just uh, it's just perfect. Yeah. I just think it, I think it's perfect, but you know. Unless you're Khalees, this has been a very good Child. album for you. <laughs> I mean, I empathize <laughs> with Khalees, but I'm still <laughs> I'm still gonna I, get my life. I, so. I mean, the I dance girl. I don't know what to tell you. The alacrity <laughs> with which she responded to that. Um, I have to say it, it it just kind of tickled me just a little bit. So, mm. and, well, you know, but I do have a petty streak. I think most people don't know that about me. <laughs> oh, I missed you guys. <laughs> okay and that is going to do it for uh 2022 my goodness gracious um before we um close out this year um i just want to on behalf of lee and page just um send out some huge huge thank yous um first thank you i mean the incredible emily amettenbrink we could not do this show without you you are such a blessing such a godsend to us thank you so much for keeping us organized keeping the guests organized um it's it's really been just such a a wonderful journey um doing this show with you she's basically our fourth co-host at this point um but i also want to thank the entire impact team for all of your tireless support and your help frankie samuel Faye, sarah rick um 
God, who am I forgetting? Daniel. <laughs> um, and I really um, also just want to um, thank Minnesota Opera for all of your support um, for these past um, two years. Um, so we will be back um in 2023 we've got some great guests like i said um at the top of the show and um it's gonna be a really spectacular year i don't know if you've heard um but lee has some news and i'm sure we'll get into that in january um but if you haven't heard about that you can just google i'm sure um But yeah, it's going to be a spectacular year and hope all of you are enjoying the holidays. Hope you had a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, beautiful solstice, and um, that you have a Happy New Year. Um, As always, please don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, If at any point this year um, there was something that you really, really enjoyed, um, it would really, really help us out um, to know that you enjoyed it (laughs) Um, and to let everyone else know that you enjoyed it. Um, Five stars, of course. And um, just tell your friends about us. And um, if there's anything that you want to talk to us about um hit us up at the score at mnopera.org and uh we'd love to hear from you so i'm gonna go enjoy the rest of my vacation i'll see you in january and um happy new year bye